Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Tom Cantor is the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, and more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God can be found at our website, friendshipwithgod.org, or call us at 800-247-3051. Today's message and past messages can be found at our websites for free listening and free download at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And what we see in Esau is great sorrow. Sorrow he's got his sorrow. You know, but it's not the right kind of sorrow. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, there's two sorrows spoken of. He says, Paul says, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but you sorrowed, but you, you sorrowed to repentance. You were made sorrow after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. So in these verses, Paul is saying that he was happy the Corinthian believers were made sorrow. And he talks about being sorrow after a godly manner and calls it a godly sorrow. And, and he says it works repentance. And godly sorrow always works a change. It works repentance. Godly sorrow always works a change in the person. But when a person is sorry for his sin, for example, that person will come to God for salvation. God will give that person the grace to stop. That's a godly sorrow that results in a change. It results in salvation. If a person has godly sorrow, it's going to result in repentance and coming to God for salvation. Even though Isaac lapsed backwards, Isaac affirmed his blessing on Jacob. And that was repentance. So godly sorrow had worked repentance in Isaac's part. But the sorrow that Esau had is called the sorrow of the world. That's the sorrow that's commonly found in the world. That sorrow doesn't result in repentance where people come to God for salvation. That sorrow works death. And that's what Esau's sorrow did. It worked death. Esau found a great consolation in his scheme of death, in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And every time he kept saying that, I'm going to slay my brother Jacob. He felt comforted. He felt consoled. And he says to say, it's all right, because I'm going to kill my brother. As a matter of fact, when Isaac said that, the days of mourning of my father are at hand, Isaac's really saying, well, pretty soon we'll be over this funeral stuff. We'll be over this memorial stuff. And as soon as it happens, I'm going to kill my brother. That's what I want to do. So Esau is looking forward to the death of his father, and then he's looking forward to the death of his brother. Sorrow that works death. It's amazing to see Esau look forward to the death of his father. I mean, this shows that Esau, it shows what Esau thinks of his father. I mean, Isaac loved Esau. Isaac would never wish the death of his son, Esau. But we never read anywhere that Esau loved Isaac, his father. As a matter of fact, seeing Esau behave the way he is here, looking for the death of his father, convinces us he didn't love his father at all. And so Esau finds comfort inside himself. He begins to speak in his heart over and over again. I will kill Jacob. I will kill Jacob. I will kill him. And as Esau thinks of this, we can see how his heart just becomes a heart of death. He looks forward to the death of his father. That'll free him up so he can bring the death of his brother. Now, in verse 36, we see how Esau is thinking. Notice how Esau is focusing on the wrongs that were done to him. He hath supplanted me. 
These two times, he took away my birthright. Behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. See, we can see from Esau's words that he's just looking at what happened from a strictly horizontal perspective. He doesn't see anything. Esau says, what's God got to do with it? God has nothing to do with it. As he says, God's hand is not not involved. And if we were to go to Esau and say, Esau, God just overruled you. Esau, God chose Jacob to receive the blessing. Esau would say, what are you talking about? God has nothing to do with this. He said, God has nothing to do with it at all. He has no idea. He's in the dark that God has overruled him by giving the blessing to Jacob. See, Esau here's a picture of the lost. He's a picture of the lost from Proverbs 28.5. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. See, Esau has just been judged. He doesn't understand that he's been judged because of his sin. Esau here is a picture of the losses. It says in Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Esau's, the lost just go through life thinking all is going great. Then all of a sudden a tragedy happens. and They say, I'm in the dark as to why this happened. I have no idea what's going on. The, the ultimate picture of this darkness is seen in Job 8, 18.18, where it said, he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of this world. See, ultimately at death, the lost are driven from light, any light they have, into a state of darkness as they feel that they're being chased out of the world. And all they can say is, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's happening. That's a picture we have here of Esau. He's in a state of darkness. He has no understanding as to why he didn't get the blessing. Now, he said, he took away my birthright. Is that right? Is that correct? (laughs) Is that accurate? (laughs) Is that true to the facts? <laughs> he, sold it. he sold it. Yeah, Jacob didn't take away his birthright. Esau consciously despised his birthright and sold it. But that was Esau's reality. I had a person say that to me one time. Confronted a person, and that person said to me, that's not my reality. Okay, this is Esau's reality. Truth for reality was that Esau despised his birthright, and Esau consciously sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. But Esau's reality? No, Jacob stole my birthright. He said he took away my birthright. It's a little convenient changing of the facts here, you know? It's a little altering of the truth. <laughs> and you notice Esau, how many times he keeps saying, me and my? He hath taken away my birthright. Behold, now he hath taken my blessing, etc. See, he sees the birthright and blessing as his by right. He has no concept that he's forfeited it because he has despised God. See, all Esau could see is Esau. Esau refused to see God in what happened. He refused to see that God made the decision to choose Jacob. And now Esau asks his father, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? He's angry with his father. He's angry with his father because he hasn't reserved a blessing for him. It's just hard to understand what Esau's thinking here. I mean, Isaac has just blessed Jacob with the blessing that Isaac had reserved for Esau. And yet Esau is now asking Isaac for the blessing that he's reserved for Esau. It doesn't make any sense. But what this shows is that Esau is just not thinking straight. He's enraged. Now, Isaac shows how he knows exactly what he has done. Isaac knows what he's done. And he states the most profound part of the blessing when he says, I have made him thy Lord. He says that. And then Isaac says to Esau, first he says, I've made him thy Lord. And then he says, 
And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? See, this shows how Isaac saw the blessing as irrevocable, that there was nothing that he could do for Esau at this point. Now, when we just look at the end of verse 36 and the end of verse 37, and just focuses on the two questions, the question of Esau and the question of Isaac, it's heart-wrenching. Because at the end of verse 36, we see Esau's question for Isaac, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And at the end of verse 37, we see Isaac's answer, which was a question, back to Esau, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And now you put those two questions together, and we see a desperation here. See, in Esau's question of, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? We see the desperation of a lost son begging his saved father to help him, help me. And in Isaac's question back, and what shall I do unto thee now, my son? We see the desperation of a safe father not able to help his lost son. And what we see in these two desperate questions is a scene like Isaac's in a lifeboat of God's salvation. And Isaac's son Esau is in the sea drowning in his lostness away from God. And Esau's stretching out his hand to his father Isaac, and he's desperately crying for help. He's saying, ask thou not a blessing for me. And he's stretching out his hand like that. And Isaac is desperately stretching out his hand to help his son, but the distance is too far. And all Isaac can do is in great distress, watch his son drown as he cries out. He said, now what shall I do now unto thee, my son? See, this is the scene. It's desperation. It's terrible. But Esau and Isaac have come to see that there's no help for Esau. And we think of that scene. It reminds us of a similar scene in Luke 16, 19, where it says, and there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, which fared sumptuously every day. There was a beggar, a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came, licked his sores, came to pass the beggar died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, was buried. And in hell, the rich man, in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the clip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted. Thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us, And you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. See, in this scene, we see a rich man. He's like Esau, and he dies lost in his sins. And in Luke 16, 23, we read this astounding truth. In hell, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. So what we find in this verse and the following verses is that there's four terrible truths about hell and death, death and hell. The first truth is that he wakes up. He wakes up. The greatest hope that the lost have is that they're not going to wake up after death. The greatest hope they have is that after they die, they'll never wake up. The lost cling to this hope as their hope. Such a hope. (laughs) But, you know, such a hope. When you're dead, you're dead. And there's no waking up after dead, after you're dead. And the lost make all the arrangements for their bodies to have the utmost destruction, cremation with fire so hot that the body is reduced to a pile of ashes. And the lost think that their bodies, they are their bodies. And if their bodies are reduced to cremation, to a pile of ashes, then they are no more, annihilation. 
But not so, says Luke 16, 23, with the words, and in hell he lift up his eyes. Not so, says Hebrews 9, 27, as it appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. The Bible's crystal clear that after death, the lost have an appointment for their judgment, and they will make that appointment. They'll be there. And no cremation, no burial at sea, no degradation in the ground will stop every lost person from attending his own appointment for judgment. No amount of morphine before death can stop the terrifying truth that Luke 16, 23 says, and in hell he lift up his eyes. There will be a lifting up of the eyes in hell for every lost person who refuses God's salvation gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. The most terrifying truth for the lost is that they will wake up after death. So the first terrifying truth for the lost who die without Christ as their Savior are these words, in hell he lift up his eyes, the waking up after death. The second terrifying truth for the lost who die without the Lord Jesus, their Savior, are the next words in Luke 16, 23, being in torments. There's feeling in hell. There's feeling in desperate torments. There's feeling of pain. There's no narcotics. There's a feeling of anxiety. There's no Ativan. There's a feeling of thirst. There's no water. And the third terrifying truth for the lost who die without the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior, are the next words in Luke 16, 23, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. There is sight in hell. Not just an ordinary sight like we know it today. There's an extraordinary sight to see people afar off and what they are doing. And this, this man's in the bosom of Abraham. Not just to know the present sufferings in hell, but to be able to see the relief and the pleasure that could have been theirs if only they had received God's salvation gift and hadn't been so nonchalantly rejecting. That brings a particular torment in hell. The ability to see in hell is terrifying. And the fourth terrifying truth for the lost who die without the Lord Jesus Christ is in Luke 16, 25, where Abraham said, but Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things like Lazarus, evil things. The fourth terrifying truth about hell is revealed in one word, remember. There is memory in hell. There is perfect memory in hell. There is an accurate memory of hell. There is not the memory of, he took my birthright away from me. There is the memory of, I despised it, and I thought a bowl of soup was more worthy of it. That's what I think of God. That kind of memory is there. The worst memories in hell are of the lost opportunities. All of the, the lost opportunities of what? Lost opportunities of all the invitations to receive Christ as Savior that were turned down. The lost opportunities of all the guilts, all the shames that were just covered over, ignored, not allowed to drive to God as a sinner pleading for mercies. The lost opportunities of all the active and passive aggressions aggressive resistances against loving Christians who were trying to bring that person to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the heat of the flames in hell are fueled by these memories. And the more the memories of the lost opportunities to receive God and his Savior, the more the torment. And in this desperate state of torment, the rich man is like Esau with this cry of, hast thou not a reserved a blessing for me? The rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormenting the flames. See, that was the rich man like Esau desperately reaching out his hand for help. And Abraham's reply was, in Luke 16, 26, beside all this, 
between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from us. See, Abraham said there's a great gulf fixed so that there's no passage between possible. The most tragic words that Abraham said were the words cannot and neither can. Abraham was saying, cannot, neither can, like Isaac was saying to Esau, what shall I do unto thee now, my son, in verse 37? The Abraham saying, cannot, neither can, is like Abraham's, like Esau would desperately stretch out his, his hands to Esau, cannot, neither can. And when we see that in Luke 16, 26, Abraham says, cannot, we say, why not? He cannot, why not? Cannot, why not? The answer comes back, remember? Remember that thou in thy lifetime, there is a time appointed by God for men to repent and be saved. And that time, Paul says in Acts 17.30, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And the time to repent is given by God with one word, now. Acts 17.30, and now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Not tomorrow, but now, because tomorrow may be too late. Proverbs 27.1, boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Not after I've had some time to have some fun in life, but now, because, Proverbs 9.6, forsake the foolish and live. Go in the way of understanding. Not when I retire and have more time, but now, because, 2 Corinthians 6.2, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. In the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Not later, now. The rich man squandered his now. He ended in hell. Not later, now. Esau squandered his now, and he ended with this desperate cry, has thou now reserved a blessing for me? Now, before we leave verse 37, we see two most tragic words. Well, all those tragic words, all those tragic words. But the two tragic words in verse 37, what are the last two words of verse 37? Those are tragic you got to look. That's it. <laughs> my son. That's tragic. My son. Those are the two most tragic words, I think. <laughs> my son. This was not just any lost person that Isaac was saying this to, he could do nothing for. This was Isaac's son. This was not just one, any one of Isaac's two sons. This was Isaac's favorite son. When Isaac said these last two words, my son, in a statement of desperation, what should I do and say, my son, we can hear in Isaac's voice how shattered Isaac was, how anxiously desperate Isaac feels for his favorite son, Esau. With one word, Isaac says there's nothing he can do for Esau. And that word is now, in verse 37. What shall I do now unto thee, my son? By saying the word now, Isaac is saying to Esau, now is too late. The most frightening words the lost will ever hear is too late. It's too late. It will be too late for the lost in Proverbs 1, 24, where he says, because I've called, you refused. I stretched out my hand, no man even looked, no man regarded. But you said it not all my counsel. You would none of my reproof. I'll also laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as a desolation, your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When your distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me early, they'll not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my reproof, they despised all my reproof. See, Isaac says in verse 37, what shall I do now? And there'll come a terrible time of now when the lost will turn to God for salvation. It will be too late. 
Isaac said in verse 37, what shall I do now? There will come a terrible time of now when the lost will quickly go run and get that gospel tract. Fumbled. Let me find that formula prayer. Let's see. Oh, here it is. Oh, I, oh, God, save me, a lost sinner. Nothing will happen. They will not be saved. Isaac says, what shall I, in verse 37, what shall I do now? There will come a terrible time of now when they'll run to the verse, well, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. It won't work. And Isaac said in verse 37, what shall I do now? There come a terrible time of now when the lost cannot be saved. Why? Because, because of that time. Verse 37, what shall I do now? Why will there be a terrible now in the future? Verse 28 of Proverbs 1, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they will not find me. The reason is that they hated the knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They didn't choose the fear of the Lord. See, Esau, why are you now hearing your father say those terrible words, what shall I do now unto thee? Because Esau, from Proverbs one twenty, Esau, for that you hated knowledge? You did not choose the fear of the Lord. You would none of God's counsel. You despised. Esau had two important now times in his life. See, Esau's first now time was wonderful, and that's when he had the choice to treasure God and his birthright or to despise God and his birthright. He made the wrong choice. He chose to despise his birthright. He says, bowl of soup's more worthy, got more value. And because he made that wrong decision in his wonderful first now time, then there's this terrible now time, what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And now we turn to verse 37, turn our eyes from Esau to Isaac and think about these last two words, my son. See, in those last two words, you know, he, my son, you know, he, this is terrible. He's saying, my son, it pains me to see you lost forever. You're lost in your sins. There's nothing I can do for you now, my son. And what shall I do unto thee now? You're lost forever. My favorite son is lost forever. There's nothing I can do. And what shall I do now for you, my son? It's such a tragic scene. It's a scene of Isaac's despair. It's a scene of Isaac's helplessness to help his son. It's a scene that all he can do is just watch his son be destroyed. It's a tragic scene of despair. Well, look at this tragic scene. What shall I do now to my son? Many of us see ourselves in Isaac's position as we have children like Esau. Many of us feel the pain of Isaac when he says, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? It's tragic. And as we look at our Esau children, we feel Isaac's despair. We feel, I say, well, what shall I do now unto thee, my son? We look at Esau, our, our Esau children, and we feel Isaac's helplessness. What shall I do now unto thee, my son? We look at our own Esau children, and we say with Isaac those words, and we feel the pain. And we think that, well, maybe before it came to this point with Esau, before this point, Isaac, I'm concerned about your favorite son, Esau. He just doesn't seem to have a heart for God. Isaac says, oh, he's all right. He's just fine. He received the Lord when he was a young boy. I've trained him up in the way he's going to go. Ah, don't have nothing to worry about. But now we see Isaac saying to his son, what shall I do now unto thee, my son? What this passage shows us is that as parents, we cannot command faith in our children. That's their responsibility. That's their duty. That's their choice. We can and we should train them. We can and we should pray for them. But as with every person, so with our children also. In the end, it's their decision, whether they'll follow God or not. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, and help us, Lord, to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen.
another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor. That's T-O-M-C-A-N-T-O-R, Tom Cantor, at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. What are you doing this Thursday? Come to the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California for our Thursday night Bible study and fellowship. This Thursday, we'll have a Support Israel rally with the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries and Friendship with God Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, as he teaches us how we can bless and support Israel and reach lost Israel. So join us this Thursday at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California, this Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. Call us for more information at 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or go online to creationsd.org, creationsd.org.